Hello again, and welcome to Smoke and Shadow. I am your host, Victoria Sadowski, and today's a little bit of a doozy, because if you haven't already noticed by the title of this episode, it's going to be split into two different episodes, because I couldn't contain myself, and I stayed up a little too late and went a little too crazy, and if you're wondering why, because your other episodes were stupid broad, you could have split them into two episodes... Um, I have a bias when it comes to goddesses of war, and this episode and the next episode are going to be about the goddess Athena. And before we dive into anything, I have to uh, correct something from the last episode about Ra and Apep. I stated a fact as a reference to the last episode where I said the 10th region of the night was a text. Uh, it's not. It's actually one of the 12 hours and or regions of the night and underworld in Egypt mythology. The 10th hour being the regeneration process of Ra and the sun in the waters of chaos. So where I say that Apep lurks at dawn is where he lurks during the 10th hour of the night. So yeah, not a text, just a time during the night when this mythology is unfolding. And once again, uh, feel free to check out my Instagram at Smoke and Shadow Podcast, or if you have any ideas for topics or stuff you want me to cover or any sources or anything like that you can email me at smoke and shadow podcast at gmail.com and in the show notes as well as on my instagram you can find a link to my patreon and if you donate thank you thank you very much and most importantly whichever platform you're listening to me on please hit the subscribe download follow and of course writing reviews really, really helps because it tells people that this is a good podcast. So if you agree, please write me a review. I very much appreciate it. And with all that out of the way, let's dive in. So we need to first talk about the Mycenaean era of Athens. And actually a little bit even before that, we need to talk about what was going on in 5000 BCE, where the Aegean Neolithic farmers migrated to the far west of Europe which ended the hunter-gatherer culture in Gaul. So these were people of the Greek region migrating into Gaul. So these sort of Aegean civilizations and the people who were indigenous to the Greek region were considered by later Greeks as the Pelasgians, who were just indigenous peoples of the Aegean Sea region. They were also believed to be the people who did not migrate west in 5000 BCE, and were native to the region prior to the Indo-European migration in 4000 BCE. Now we're jumping ahead a little bit to 1600 to 1200 BCE. The Mycenaeans evolved alongside the Hittites, Egyptians, and Canaanites. And this was an era where they really became established and began a lot of trade with these major empires. I want to say the peak of this trade uh, probably hit around 1500 BCE. In 1450 BCE, the civilization built up its naval powers and took hold of the island of Crete, as well as the city of Knossos of the Minoans. The Mycenaeans take a lot of inspiration from Minoan architecture, and you can see it in the pantheons. They also pick up on artisan and craftsman skills while importing from Mediterranean cities and empires from 1400 to 1200 BCE. Militarization also picked up during this time to protect these nearby cities and empires from larger neighboring empires. 
And thus, Athens goes from a settlement to a Mycenaean fortress prior to the building of the Pantheon upon the Acropolis. The fall of the Hittites gave way to a sudden and chaotic migration period that left the Mycenaean civilization unstable around 1200 BCE. A theory to the downfall of the Mycenaeans is that this instability brought about skirmishes between the cities of Mycenae, so Thebes, Pylos, and a little bit of Athens. Dorian Greeks then came down and settled in war-stricken lands of former Mycenae, and it was the Dorian Greeks who were formerly believed to have facilitated the downfall of the Mycenae, but recent archaeological discoveries suggest that they just migrated there and they didn't really have a hand in the formal downfall. Athens is said to have maintained autonomy through this turbulence, but not much else is known about this period of Athens. And it still suffered a long and drawn-out economic downturn. So they survived, but it wasn't a great period in time for Athens. Some of these politics and ongoings are said to have inspired epics such as the Iliad and Odyssey, which we'll be covering a little bit later. Although, inspired is definitely the term you want to go with because these are very mythic-based. Uh, they're not really historical accounts. Sorry, Homer. Around 900 BCE... Athens regained its prominence and became the biggest trading hub in the Greek world. In circulating legends about this time, Athens is said to be ruled by kings, though most of them are mythical, and we'll talk about a few of them. Athens manages to get the Attic Peninsula unified under Athenian rule, and in the 7th century BCE, Athens went through a great deal of civil unrest that prompted the Draconian Era Law which, to put it simply, is just a rough beginning to democracy. Reforms under the statesman Salon then ushered in a new class system and thrust Athens into a democratic era. Pisistratus then takes control of Athens and brings upon a roughly democratic era that enforced Salonian constitution. Cleisthenes then overthrows Pisistratus's son in 510 BCE and this officially establishes democracy in Athens. In 479 BCE, the Athenians and the Spartans joined forces and went to war with the growing Persian Empire, eventually winning the war during the Battle of Plataea. However, Athenians and Spartans could not hold their truce for long, and thus the Peloponnesian War broke out. Due to Sparta's imperialist politics, however, Thebes and Corinth switched sides and allied with Athens, turning the tides of the war. Uh, this portion is also considered the Corinthian War. Thebes defeated Sparta, but then Athens and Sparta turned on Thebes. I don't know why. I, I don't know why. By the 4th century BCE, Macedonian influence trickled down into the Greek city-states and eventually worked to take control of Athens and Thebes. Once Macedonia unites and takes over the Greek region, eventually Alexander the Great comes into power, and Macedonia then becomes one of the most major empires of that time and takes over pretty much all of Asia Minor. And now the Hellenistic period begins. And of course, that's around the time where the Romans start to get involved in this region. But we're not, we're not going to talk about Rome. We're not here to talk about Rome. We're here to talk about Athena.
Okay. So first we have to talk about Athena's origin myths. And I'm not just talking about the ones that are the most commonly known. We're also going to be diving into ones that I stumbled upon that might be uh, pre-Greek or pre-Macedonian in nature. So we're going to talk about those a little bit too. According to the Pelasgians, or, you know, earliest Greeks, Athena was a goddess born in modern-day Libya near Lake Tritonus. Uh, there she raised and nurtured the three nymphs of Libya, and she was heavily associated with the Libyan goddess Nyth. And just to clarify, so people don't get confused, because I know a lot of you probably heard that and were like, Nyth is an Egyptian goddess. According to archaeology, it's more... It's probably closer that she was more associated with Libya. And because of the Phoenicians who first established trading posts in Libya in the 5th century BCE, they had a heavy trade with Egypt at that point. So it's very possible that through travel, Nyth came to Greece because this is kind of how Athena, according to what I've found, ended up in Greece because she migrated to Greece by way of Crete and took up residence in Athens. Probably at the time it wasn't called Athens. And, you know, speaking metaphorically because her travel to these regions was through this trade of, you know, pottery, textiles, grain, anything, just like migrating up and down these trade routes. And that's how she migrated. And although we have empires like Egypt where they have a masculine god, a lot of the religions around the Mediterranean at this point were feminine in nature, similar to Shaktism in a way. Because in a lot of these cultures, uh, women were considered divine, whereas men were considered the secondary sort of protectors of the divine. They didn't really have a purpose other than upholding the divine, which is women. An example of this sort of universal goddess spiritual perspective of these people, you have the goddess Uranome, which is considered one of the earliest Grecian myths, where she's just, you know, kind of like Ra. She's born from nothing in the midst of nothing, and she just starts creating. And the first thing she creates is uh, Ophion the snake. And it really, this myth really puts into perspective the opinion of men, which, um, in any society where one of the genders is ranked higher than the other, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. So, but it also, you know, alludes to human nature at the same time. So just to give you an idea of what I mean, I'm just going to read a little bit of an excerpt from one of my sources. Next, she assumed the form of a dove brooding on the waves and, in due process of time, laid the universal egg. At her biting, Ophion coiled several times around the egg until it hatched and split in two, out tumbling all the things that exist, her children, sun, moon, planets, and stars, the earth with its mountains and rivers, its trees, herbs, and living creatures. Uranome and Ophion made their home upon Mount Olympus, where he vexed her by claiming to be the author of the universe. Forthwith, she bruised his head with her heel, kicked out his teeth, and banished him to the dark caves below the earth. Next, the goddess created the seven planetary powers because I guess the bitch moved the fuck on already. So again, like other cultures, there are a lot of small indigenous tribes at first that have their own gods and goddesses and have their own sort of social 
dynamics and hierarchies. And the more that they evolve and the more that they start to clash with one another, you start to get all these other creation myths, which are what we know today being, you know, the standard Greek myth. So now we're going to talk about that. So as we know, Zeus cheats on Hera yet again, but this time with a titaness named Metis, uh, who is the titan of wisdom. Someone, either Rhea or the Fates, tells Zeus that he's going to be usurped by one of his children, similar to what he did to Kronos. So Zeus does, you know, sort of the family tradition. He just eats whoever is going to usurp him. So before the kid's even born, Zeus just eats Metis. And I don't know if she, like, dies or, like, her life force goes into a thing. I don't know. I don't know. Zeus then goes back to Hera and is like, all is good, babe, we're good to go. And they fuck like wild dogs and have the prized Olympian babies. So Ares, Aphrodite, Hermes. Although in some renditions, these gods already existed. But regardless, Zeus does the usual and apologizes through sex. Not too long after these children are born, Zeus begins to come down with a severe migraine. He asks the god Hephaestus... Uh, to use an axe to split his head open and reveal the pain. And then, you know, out pops Athena, fully armored, grown-ass woman, ready to go. I'm not sure exactly how, but Athena quickly ascends Olympus as being Zeus's favorite. Which, no one really tries to fuck with her on, so that's good. It's not that she doesn't get fucked with by other gods, but, like, all the gods fuck with each other, and Athena is by far the best at evading any of their attacks, advances, anything. She's just that good. Athena was also sometimes pronounced as Athene, and the reason why Athens has the name that it does is, uh, according to them, Athena and Poseidon competed to become the city's patrons, Poseidon presented a strong naval force, whereas Athena offered an olive tree for peace and prosperity at the city. So the Athenians went with her, and they still managed to have a pretty decent navy, nonetheless. Poseidon was pissed and tried to retaliate, but of course it didn't work with Athena. But at the same time, she made a truce with him where she had to deprive all Athenian women of voting rights, and no man could bear their mother's name. So now the hierarchy tides are turning where we have a lot of cultures that are bolstering women and putting women on pedestals. Now we start to see more patriarchal cultures sort of either rising up against that or neighboring cultures are now seeing that and being like, hell no, men are on top. So let's change that real quick. And you see that with Athena, even though she maintains her autonomy as a goddess, and she's even the favorite of the king god. She's not the queen. Zeus is the king. And although there was talk of usurping, she does a lot of things against women, despite the fact also being a protector of maidens and women. So it's just, you get a very weird, non-sequitur sort of timeline with her. It's very strange, and it's very conflicting because she sort of almost represents this battle between the matriarchal and patriarchal cultures and in a way she sort of represents a transition period and the decline of matriarchy and the rise of what would become global patriarchy but going back to the 
uh, war over Athens myths. A sacred olive tree said to be the one created by Athena was kept at the Acropolis at the time of Pausanias in the 2nd century CE. So this whole escapade was Poseidon going on a tirade trying to steal cities from his fellow gods whilst complaining that they were all against him. These epics kind of made me hate him more than Zeus. I'm not gonna lie. Like, Zeus sucks. But Poseidon's a bitch. Poseidon's a little fucking bitch. And that is 100% my personal opinion. But if you read some of these myths and the fact that he's just like, all oh, the gods are... And it's like, you're the god of the ocean. You don't... You don't get land. You don't get land. And yes, you might have been fucked over by your brother, but that's between you and your brother. It's not between all these other gods who are given stuff. But by having that opinion, I also have that opinion on certain cultures in the Mediterranean because the gods reflected what they were doing. And there were certain culture clashes where patriarchal cultures were trying to snatch up cities. And then they'd go around complaining about it and making it out to be like their god and Athena were at war and they were just bitter about it. And it's just, it just reflects the mindset, roughly, from what, from what we know of the people who were getting up to this shit. And, you know, I don't know what it's like to live at that time, but like, don't get greedy. Don't get greedy. Don't be Ophion. Don't be Ophion. Don't be saying you made everything when you didn't. Don't be taking cities when they're not yours. Anyway, back to Athena. Athena is said to be the creator of many instruments and skills such as the flute, trumpet, earthenware crafting, the rake, the ox yoke, horse bridle, the chariot, and the ship. So she built ships. Poseidon didn't build ships. <laughs> Not that I know of. She, he didn't create the ship. If you want to take cities and be god of... Okay, you can tell how much I fucking hate Poseidon. You can tell how I'm never going to do an episode on Poseidon. Athena's animal affiliations are the owl, a symbol of wisdom, as well as the spider, a symbol of fate. However, there's other reasons she's associated with the spider, but we'll, we'll get there. Although a goddess of war who occasionally engages in battle... Athena gets no pleasure from warfare like Ares or Eris do. She excels at settling disputes and providing efficient strategic prowess to those who worship her. Although, once engaged in battle, she does not lose, even against Ares since her physical battle capabilities are on par with her strategic tactics. She's known to be merciful and always votes to liberate the accused. And in some of her myths, a man once saw her naked and she blinded him as a result, but also gave him foresight as recognition that he had not intended to be seeing her undressed. So myths like these help illuminate that Athena was definitely ruthless at times and she was perfectly capable of taking away certain things from people. But she was also merciful in a way and understanding of the context and situation. It's thought that Athens weaponized Athena's maidenhood as a symbol of invincibility for the city and would result in Athens creating later renditions of myths such as Erechthonius, which we'll get to a little bit later. So now we need to talk about Athena and Pallas. Pallas being uh, one of Athena's mythological companions who is really kind of her only friend and you're gonna find out why when Pallas and Athena got together they would talk war strategy and do a little bit of sparring 
One day while sparring, Pallas lands a harsh blow on Athena that really just pisses her off. Athena goes and tells Zeus about this, and he gives her the Aegis, a shield with a gorgon's head on it. Athena uses it while sparring with Pallas, and it turns her to stone and kills her. Saddened by her own actions, Athena takes on her friend's name and becomes Athene Pallas, or sometimes Pallas Athena. She makes a wooden statue of Pallas's head at Olympus, which makes Zeus angry, and he kicks it from Olympus and it rolls down to Troy, where it is worshipped for a time, until during the Iliad, Odysseus steals it because Athena hates the Trojans. Why? We'll be covering that in part two. Now we're going to start to get into the real epics of Athena. Uh, first off, we're going to talk about her weird relationship, brief, non-existent relationship with Hephaestus. Hephaestus attempted to seduce Athena by telling her he'd make her a weapon in exchange for love. Athena, being dense and assumed he was meaning platonically and didn't pick up on the meaning, just went with it. Poseidon also lied to Hephaestus and said that Zeus gave his consent to make a move, which was permission he knew would only be granted if Athena was willing since she was the favorite. After making her the sword, he tried to have his way with her, but he got a little too excited and came too early right as Athena pushed him away. She wiped off his ejaculate which had landed on her thigh in disgust, and it landed near Athens when she tossed it, and it fertilized Gaia. Revolted by the prospect of mothering a child Hephaestus had tried to force on Athena, Gaia refused to raise it. Athena herself then decided to take care of the child, who would be known as Erichthonius, and gave him to Aglorus, the eldest daughter of the Athenian king. Now we're going to talk about Athena and Medusa. <laughs> oh god. There's so many variations for this myth, and most of them are real questionable, as I'm sure you know. One states that Poseidon seduced and or raped Medusa in the temple of Athena and was cursed by Athena for desecrating her temple, which, Athena, what the fuck, man? What the fuck? Another rendition of this states that Athena gave Medusa mercy after being assaulted and gave her a form that no man would want to accost. And if they ever dared even gaze at her, they would turn to stone. However, this sort of contradicts later Pseudo-Apollodorus lore, where Athena guided the demigod Perseus to find and kill Medusa with the reflective shield she gave him. So, yeah, gets a little weird. And other variations say Poseidon wasn't even involved, and Medusa spent all her time boasting about her good looks, to the point where she drove everyone out of Athena's temple. Athena then pretty much told her that she was being extremely vain and needed to be taught a lesson, thus cursing her to become a Gorgonian monster. Although Gorgons were depicted all throughout the Greek tribes in the early myths, even before Medusa lore, Gorgons were creatures that punished men who committed horrible acts, but were also a little bit later described as the protectors of oracles. It isn't until the 7th century BCE that the triptych of Gorgons is referenced, the triad Medusa is part of. In Hesiod lore, they were the three daughters of the primordial sea gods 
four C's in Ceto. Now we need to talk about Athena and Arachne. Athena challenges Arachne to a weaving competition because she heard of the mortal's talent. Arachne ends up proving equal skill to Athena, which doesn't bode well for her. Athena then turns her into a spider because she liked to weave so much, so she might as well just be a spider. Uh, variations of this myth say that Athena killed her first, or that Arachne hung herself out of shame for disrespecting Athena, and Athena felt bad about this later, as she does every time she fucking gets someone killed, and revived her in the form of a spider that wove strings of fate for all eternity. It's also said that Athena turned her into the insect she hated the most, and that arachnophobia is an instinctual reaction for the children of Athena, fearing that Arachne has returned to enact revenge. It's also speculated that this particular epic involving Arachne illuminated a rivalry between Athenians and the Lydio-Carian sea rulers of Miletus. Miletus was the largest exports of dyed woolens in the Mediterranean, and I believe were one of the first people to make a purple dye. And their emblem and sort of mascot was the spider, so it just went with the brand. It, it was, you know, they were known throughout the Mediterranean as being the best weavers. So weavers and textile makers of Athens were extremely jealous of this and had this attitude of, okay, keep it. You can weave forever. We're going to dominate every other industry. So... That was one of many forces behind Athens becoming the great city that it was. And again, just to go back a little bit, the appearance of Poseidon in this folklore also just continues to illuminate the sort of rise of patriarchy within Grecian folklore. Because a lot of with the Greek myths that we know, rape and the abduction of women is very common. So you can sort of see the more feminine aspects of this folklore, which were at one point tribal goddesses, where in these cultures, women were upheld in society. And now that all these micro-cultures have conflated and become the Greek myths, you start to see women being taken advantage of and sort of pushed down. And that's not to say, like, I mean, possibly, some cultures, and I'll touch more on this later, some cultures were probably, you know, not great towards men. Some were probably peaceful, and men took pride in being the protectors of the divine. You don't know. It's all it's all different. Everyone has different backgrounds and whatever. But there was, I feel like, whenever I research certain time periods in the Bronze Age around the Mediterranean, there was starting to become resentment towards women. And it might have been from these cultures where women were seen as first-class citizens compared to men. You don't know. You don't know. It could be just one culture is matriarchal, one culture is patriarchal. And they go to war, and the patriarchal tries to, you know, conquer the matriarchy. And you can see that in these myths. And something about Athena is that there are different aspects of all the Greek goddesses where they sort of hold that 
old world autonomy still. Athena just happens to do it the best. Until, you know, Christianization, then she's sainted as Minerva, but you, you get what I'm saying. Also, I find Arachne lore interesting in the sense where if you just change your perspective a little bit, it can almost be seen as a double-edged curse. <laughs> where Athena is sort of a personification for Athens and the city's attitude towards Miletus. And she curses or binds them to their trade, whilst... The people of Athens are also cursed to be arachnophobic as a countermeasure in case revenge is sought. Like, it's just, no one really wins, and I don't know. It's just, it's interesting if you really look at the big picture of why. Because a lot of the reasons as to why I wanted to do an episode on Athena is because I like Athena, but there's a lot about her folklore that's very questionable, and I'm trying to figure out why is it questionable. And now if we look at, you know, again, the rise of patriarchal norms, you get to understand why. It's not like this goddess is just a conduit for male authority and male values through a depiction of a grand or powerful woman. Because she has origins in a matriarchal system. And she has roots in being, you know, a goddess in which people worship and respect, not just... She's not just a tool, is what I'm trying to get across. Although, definitely with the rise of the patriarchy, I think men have definitely tried to use the iconography and depiction of Athena to their advantage, as well as Nike, 100%. It's everywhere. It's still in our culture now. And it's gross. It's gross. It's a little gross, but like figuring out what these things come from just help you to sort of figure out why and how did we get here? Once upon a time, there was a supreme matriarchy and it fell. Sumer, I believe, was also one of these, which we I might mention in part two, so I won't. I won't spoil it. Also, Athena's correlation to the spider is very interesting because of how she works and I don't want to spoil that either god damn it anyway she's just you know spiders in a lot of cultures are seen as being weavers of fate and Athena although she is not one of the three fates she does have a little bit of a hand in that sort of area one of the things that just makes her so powerful is that she has her hands in a lot of different things. And she conquers every single thing she tries. Except weaving. <laughs> except weaving. But it is, you know, she was only just shy of being as good, I guess, as this mortal. And now, she's not mortal. Some people, some people believe more so in neo-pagan traditions that... Arachne became Athena's sort of companion, similar to the owl. Um, I'm not sure about this. I've had spooky experiences with spiders that I'm not going to get into, so I don't know. I don't know. But these days, people seem to think that Arachne is more of a sort of messenger for Athena rather than a product of Athena's anger? I don't know. So, <laughs> do with that information what you will. 
Anyway, thank you for tuning in to listen to my rendition of Athena mythology. And I'm not going to list out my sources. I'm going to do that at the end of the part two because that's how my outline looks right now. And I don't want to try and figure out which sources are for what information. So I'm just going to read it all off at the end. So there you go. And again, if you don't already follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on, please do. It really helps grow the podcast. So if you could do that, that'd be awesome. And if you want to give it a share, awesome. If you want to review, awesome. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you on part two.